runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 201 with guest Mark Rasinovich, recorded Thursday, February 3rd, 2011. Run As Radio is produced each week by Quap Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. Uh, with me, my co-host, Greg Hughes. Let's do a little Run As Radio. Yeah, let's do that. How are you doing, Richard? I am well, sir. And, uh, you know, from coming into the spring season now and looking at the crazy list of conferences, going to be skipping all over Europe this year. Travel time. What do you mean this year? Is that anything new for you? No, not really, actually. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not complaining. It's a fun way to make a living traveling around talking to people. Well, into we're now we're now into the number two hundreds for our shows. We've been doing this for a while. Yeah, well, we're getting good at it, I guess. Left practice. That's four yeah. years worth of shows, anyway. Yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no question. Let's talk to our guest. Our guest is none other than Mark Rasinovich, a technical fellow in the Windows Azure group at Microsoft. He is a widely recognized expert in Windows operating system internals as well as the operating system architecture and design. He's the co-author of Windows Internals book series and the official Microsoft press book on Windows operating systems internals. Uh, he's also the guy who found the Sony rootkit way back when, if I recall correctly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now, of course, with Microsoft as a tech fellow and uh, and a true, genuine PhD in ComSci, if I recall. Is that true, mm-hmm. Mark? That, that's true. It's you're like computer engineering. You're actually a professional, as opposed to all of us amateurs. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, how are you, sir? I'm doing good. I only ever see you at conferences, I'm afraid, right? But, yeah, that's yeah, typically the pl- place that I cross paths with a lot of friends. Yeah, without a, without a doubt. And I uh, was surprised to see you move from the Windows team over to the Azure team, although I think that's really good for Azure, in my opinion. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I hope to do good over here. Um, I moved over from Windows back in the last summer, mm-hmm. and what led up to that was... You know, we'd finished Win 7, Windows 8 had kind of started to get underway, but I'd been talking to uh, several people over here in the Azure group that I respect and I'm good friends with, including Dave Cutler, the original architect of NT, who was one of the original founding members of the, the Windows Azure team back when it was codenamed Red Dog. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bob Muglia, good friends with him, was talking with him, and Amitab Sivastrava, who's the head of the Azure group, Ray Ozzy. And over the course of time, you know, I talked more about with them about the cloud and what was going on with Azure and was watching what was going on kind of uh, with the the world moving to the cloud, thinking about how things would play out probably over the next 10 or 15 years. Sure. And came to the conclusion that Azure was going to be a foundation for the future of, uh, if, if not other people's software as a service applications, Microsoft's own in-house one. So I figured it's a sure thing right. that this thing is going to be an important platform for Microsoft and or the world. And it's a great time to come and have a lot of impact and influence on the way that platform shapes up. And I mean, you're the guy known for deeply understanding Windows. Is there something different in the way Windows should work in a cloud environment compared to regular servers or desktop machines? Um, the thing about the the way that we're using windows in azure there's 
two ways that we use it. One is uh, with as a virtual machine to host the platform as a service applications we run. Mm-hmm. In that case, the more like Windows the environment is, the better, because that makes it easier to migrate applications into the environment. So, and as far as Windows working one way or another, really Windows is uh, an arbiter of the virtual resources within that virtual machine for pieces of that application running in it. The parts that are more cloudish are the frameworks and APIs that allow them to take advantage of other cloud services. And part of that is the platform as a service features that Azure provides. Then the other way that we use Windows, of course, is as the host operating system. And in that case, uh, this kind of led to Dave Cutler coming and believing that his uh, expertise would be valuable in this, and that is that we don't actually run stock Windows as a host. We run something called Red Dog Operating System. Oh, yeah. We don't actually run Hyper-V. We run the Red Dog Hypervisor. And these are modified versions of the of Windows Hyper-V, the, real, the public version in, the, in Hyper-V, that are tuned for our hardware, stripped down so that they're minimal and only have the features and functionality required for hosting these virtual machines and running on the hardware that we run on. And uh, so... And they take advantage of some of the features uh, before we get a chance to uh, take advantage of them in a public re- publicly released version of Hyper-V. For example, second-level page tables, uh, which was introduced by AMD and Intel several, over the last several years, Red Dog was taking advantage of it right as soon as the first silicon came out because Dave had been working with them to make sure that the Red Dog hypervisor worked with that. And, you know, you poking on an area I think is very interesting that – I feel like as software people, we're struggling to keep up with the moves that the hardware companies are making, uh, and especially in multi-core, but also some of the new memory architectures and, and new bus architectures. You know, does the, and it's, I'm thinking at the high level, but even at the OS, it seems like it's a challenge to get our OSs to fit neatly in the diversity of hardware we have now. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, uh, uh, over in the Windows group, you know that they're, uh, back at CES, they announced that they're running on ARM SOCs. SOC architecture is something very different than what Windows has traditionally run on, mm-hmm. where a lot of the silicon that used to be off the die is now integrated tightly with the CPU. The GPU is on the die. There's a, d- a bunch of different I.O. devices that are on the die, and they don't have the traditional PC-style innumerable discoverable architecture that uh, that the PC eventually grew into. So it's there was a lot of work, and actually, I was involved in some of that before I left Windows, is getting Windows ready to be those platforms. Because, I mean, I remember the NT stack as being somewhat platform agnostic. You know, in the old days, there were four different architectures it ran on. They they all sort of fell by the wayside for Intel. It's kind of nice to see an alternative come back. Well, actually, the as far as the architecture goes, the architectures of all the, of the systems that Windows ran on were all fairly similar. And... Uh, you know about the hardware abstraction layer, the interface between the kernel and the hardware. Mm-hmm. That was an abstraction layer, that, and it was very thin, that hid the differences between x86 and, for example, the PowerPC architecture or the Alpha architecture. Mm-hmm. The um, SOC architecture is drastically different. You can't just put a thin veneer on things and, wow. it, and it'll just work. Uh, but as far as the CPU architecture, ARM versus P- PowerPC or Alpha, Windows is uh, was modularized in a way that it's relatively easy to port it to other CPU architectures. So that was more of just going in and writing, 
you know, wherever the system uses assembly in a few places, writing the ARM versions of that, making sure the ARM compiler is performant. Um, very similar to the way you see Linux being able to be ported to a whole bunch of different CPU architectures. For, but the platform architecture, that's really where the bulk of the work is. Being able to offload video and hardware to these devices so that you get great battery life and not involve the CPU, that's something that in the, in the PC world, it, uh, w- whether the PC was idle or not, had very little impact on the, on uh, the power consumed by a desktop and very little even on a laptop. And mm-hmm. so there wasn't any emphasis on trying to take advantage of hardware acceleration like there is in an SOC or, you know, these small phone and tablet devices. Where, where you, it's it kind of nice to be da- back down to these small platforms where you really do have to utilize the hardware fully. We've gotten sort of fat and lazy in the desktop world. We have so much power, and we just don't need it most of the time. Yeah, that's definitely true. And, you know, the fact is, when you try to fit on these, when you work to fit on these small devices efficiently, you're just going to run that much better on the larger devices. Without, yeah, without a doubt. And I, I wonder if we're going to start seeing ARM on the desktop, given the strengths that it that it does have and the sort of power that it brings. Yeah, I think that's pretty inevitable. Um, we're seeing Android go up from the phone to the the tab, you know, the tablet now, and mm-hmm. I think it's just a matter of time before Android ends up on a desktop. And I've always been split on sure. this idea that, you know, with these miniaturized chipsets and and higher density computing and so forth, do we really need a stripped down operating system when we've got so much horsepower available to us and it's only getting smaller and faster? Well, the the, the sm- low end of the smartphone space, even if you look out over the next few years, is still still extremely small um, compared to even uh, a modest laptop today. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. it's going to be a while before we can just say, okay, we're it's good enough and let's let the fat can grow again to take advantage of this. And, and I mean, the thing is, too, that we got burned by this, uh, you know, Windows, uh, when Vista came out, it was clear that netbook phenomenon mm-hmm. burned Vista because Vista had kind of been designed with that philosophy of things are just going to get bigger and more powerful. And so let's, right. let's use it all. And then netbooks came out and Vista had a hard time fitting on those devices because they were had much less power than it was designed for. And, uh, I think that it's prudent to make sure that your platform, the core platform can run on as, as uh, efficiently and uh, in as small a footprint as possible, just so that you don't run into some some something like that again, where you, it does pay to be uh, work well on these small devices. I mean, embedded devices that are going to be everywhere. We got we're talking about Internet of Things, and costs of those things still matters. So the difference between uh, uh, 512 meg of RAM versus two gig of RAM on those things is going to matter for a while, and similarly in other types of the hardware that is on those things when you've got thousands of those things around your house. Now I'm thinking about the embedded hardware that goes in my dishwasher Mm -hmm. and it, you know, I guess they don't want to spend more than $10 on that and right. But I can get a pretty good PC chipset, minimal configuration in the 50 buck range. Like it's, it's pretty compelling to just recognize that everything should have Wi-Fi. And everything, you know, is a device on your network. And, and I, why shouldn't there be a web server in my dishwasher? I don't know what it would tell me. but <laughs> There's a real opportunity there, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things with uh, the, that makes uh, wiring appliances and electronics in the house to, uh, to the network is this smart grid that we're all talking about. And 
mm-hmm. where if you do have it wired with some brain that's looking and maybe even tied into the central power grid to understand the way power is being used, then those things can operate in a way that tries to maximize efficiency sure. um, and, and distribute load and keep things as, so you don't have these spikes because everybody turns on their dishwasher at the same time. We we joke about computerized dishwashers and clothing washers and refrigerators and all that, but there really are some meaningful, practical applications for the future. Yeah. Jared, I want to jump back to Azure since, in theory, that's your job these days. Yeah, it's, and it's I, actually in practice, too. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it's <laughs> I mean, exactly this. You have these massive economies of scale, but you've also got a tremendous amount of pressure on consuming power efficiently, utilizing that infrastructure efficiently. Yep. Uh, so... Azure, we've got these massive data centers that we're creating around the world. And uh, that's one of the benefits, actually, of cloud computing is that we can apply our expertise in power management, in data center cooling, in data center uh, power, such that uh, we can get the most efficiency out of, the net, uh, out of our devices and our data center hardware, something that would take uh, an enormous amount of expertise and Work to deploy in some in an enterprise's own data center. Uh, it's just not feasible to get that kind of uh, scale and economy and place the data centers in the right areas. I mean, we take yeah. advantage, for example, of the net of of the surrounding cool air and hot air in the summer to uh, maximize the power efficiency of our latest data center. There's actually a video on the web that's pretty cool about the Quincy data center that we opened up, which is this one of these container-based data centers. It's in a large building that basically has sheets for a wall so that uh, the machines and the containers, uh, heating and cooling systems can take advantage of the ambient air to uh, huh, cool. minimize power usage. Yeah, I, I saw a piece where there was a data center being built in Iceland, not that they had any demand for the computing power, but because their air conditioning was basically opening the door. Mm-hmm. It's cold there. And, uh, and of course, the power is relatively cheap there because it's a geothermal hotbed. Uh, yep. is, is the Quincy Data Center the one right beside the uh, the hydroelectric dam? Um, I think so. I've yeah. not been there, so I don't know exactly where it is. Well, and because of course, if you're not, it's data centers are their own business, and most enterprises that's not actually what they do for a living. Yeah, that's not where they want to spend their money. Yeah, and it's just a way of thinking about how you manage things. That uh, you know, if if my business is data centers, then I'm going to do it this way. Yep, and that's I mean the the whole value of the cloud. Um, it sounds like marketing-ish, but really it's enterprises that, that uh, deploying hardware and setting up networks, setting up data centers and racks and uh, network gear, installing operating systems, patching the operating systems. All of that is really, that doesn't go to the bottom line at all. It's, it, uh, it's a required part of business, but it's a cost. It, it's a negative on the bottom line, and really what the business gets its value from are the things that it runs on top of that, mm-hmm. on top of the mm-hmm. infrastructure. And if you could outsource all that junk to somebody that is very efficient at doing it, then uh, you can focus on the value part of your business and take, a fit, uh, take advantage, like you said, of the economies of scale that you get from leveraging somebody else's infrastructure. Well, and on the finance side, this is huge drop in capital investment for a non-trivial increase in right. cost of goods or operating costs because yep. you, you are, you know, the server's got to be paid somehow. And now that you're not paying for it up front and taking it out of the capital budget, you are 
paying it month to month. So I, I feel like as I'm working with different IT teams, they're struggling to move that capital budget over to the operating budget. Yeah, it's a different way of looking at the numbers for sure. And I, I don't think we've been here long enough for people to to understand uh, where, where the line is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, I, if I'm running this way, leveraging the cloud over five years versus owning my own hardware over five years, how's that really work out? I think is a complex right. equation. Yeah, I, I think it's very challenging. But the, but the fact is, though, it's more than just a capital expense. You're also the IT staff, the management burden, mm-hmm. the operations overhead. All of that mm-hmm. is goes to into that equation too that you can pull out. I think people want to shoot for a zero sum game that I'm going to save enough money that it ends up, you know, about equal and but I still get these additional scaling abilities and, you know, responsiveness to demand. I don't know anybody who can provision a, a server faster than going to the cloud. Yeah. You know, but you, you can't touch that. And I'm not seeing really careful elasticity. Folks are saying, "Hey, we're going to have a big weekend. Let's just double the allocation." Because if it doesn't get used, it doesn't cost that much. But if you don't have it in place when you need it, then it is a big deal. And you yep. just wouldn't do that if you owned your own data center. Yep. And I mean, that, that's, uh, you know, the pay, is pay on demand and the ability to scale up and scale down, I think, is, like you said, another attractive part of the cloud. And then what we've been talking about, though, is purely the infrastructure part of the cloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, that what Azure is all about and what makes it so compelling uh, for me to come and work on it and for the other people like Dave Cutler is its platform as a service, and that's what we uh, w- what we're talking about when we say that it's providing uh, functionality that lets uh, you very easily develop one of these cloud applications. And one way of looking at it is if you asked your IT staff uh, to write, or your or an ISV to write on top of infrastructure, on top of just bare operating system, a 24 by 7 elastic highly available application, that's a huge task if you're just starting with the common server application building blocks to get all of that right and to make it so that you can update the application with no downtime, to make it so that you can service the operating system with no downtime, to make it so that you can automate it, send out an update to the application in an automated way and know that that update is just going to work, not have to go from machine to machine and and test, and that's what the Azure platform as a service is about: is making it, you know, open Visual Studio, create a DASP.NET website, create the web uh, worker role behind it, and literally in 15 minutes, it might be a simple app, but it's a 24 by 7 elastic, highly available application you've just created that can be updated and configured with zero downtime. Now, I'm still concerned, knowing developers that I've worked with that you can still hamstring yourself with singletons to have impacts ability to scale. It's not like we haven't given the developers enough rope to screw this up. They can still get themselves in trouble. That's true. Um, and Windows Azure, one of the ways that uh, we discourage, where we encourage people to think about it and to stay away from patterns that are going to cause problems for them uh, where they fall into singleton behaviors is the fact that our SLA is a multi-instance SLA. So if you really want to take advantage of 99.95 on Azure, you need two instances right. to be running concurrently. And the second is that there's no durable local store. Yeah, so if you're storing stuff on the local 
disc in the in the registry, that stuff's going to go away potentially. Uh, certainly, if there's a hardware failure, that's going to go away. And hardware failures are an absolute fact of life that I think a lot of developers don't even consider. They let the IT staff worry about that. Yeah. And that's another one of those burdens that IT has to worry about is a server goes down, a disk goes bad, memory has a problem. Then what application was running on it? How do we get that application back? Did that application uh, leave any state on the system that's actually data that we need to recover? Those are big questions that IT has to wrestle with when those kinds of unplanned outages happen. And really, in the, in the big scheme of things, they're kind of expected unplanned outages. In the data center, you know, somewhere like around 6% of the systems have a hardware problem every year. Sure. And so that's just uh, something that if you're leveraging the cloud and platform as a service, that as a developer, you don't even have to worry about it. And you're, taking, and you're doing the right uh, kind of architecture. Well, and how many times have I brought a dev team and an IT team together to actually allow for elegant failover? You know, you have to write your software to tolerate the fact that this thing will go away and something will come back. Right. And then you have to, you know, are you going to save that, actually recover that transaction or roll it back? Like, how are you going to do that? But uh, it seems rare that folks actually work through all those issues. Is there ways that Azure sort of forces this? I mean, I like the idea that you've really made it hard to store stateful information in the worker role. Yeah. That's just stopping a bad behavior. Uh, But I I guess the question is, you know, is it, uh, what are we doing in the cloud that makes developers more cognizant of coping with failure? Well, um, so we've got uh, SQL Azure, which is a, highly available database so you can have transactional semantics behind you if you're on the durable store in addition for example if you're for communicating between the the front end and your middle tier we've got the queuing service which has characteristics that also are designed to make it easy to deal with failures for example if somebody's pulled an item off the queue there's a uh, you basically take a lease on it and that when if, if you don't come back and say, I'm deleting it uh, when I'm done with it. If you fail somewhere in the middle of processing that queue item, it remains on the queue, the timeout expires, and then one of your other worker roles will pick it up. So it's not lost, and you don't have to worry about the logic of, of how to construct one of those reliable queues to, for this inner machine communication. Right. And, it, and, and that's, those are a tech, these are all things I can do in traditional N-tier architectures. It's just hard it's a lot of work yep Yep. there's no voodoo here but uh you know just you've made a little easier yep it's just that uh you don't the libraries are are provided for you hide all that complexity of the inner machine communication and protocols to get that uh scalable uh scalable reliable service that you just take advantage of just by calling simple apis I'm wondering when we're going to start seeing things happening in the cloud that you just couldn't have done with your own end-tier architectures. So we just go in another direction. Well, I don't know if um, if there's anything inherently that you can do in the cloud that you can't do with an end-tier architecture. It just it's all about making it simple to do those same things and make it so that you can uh, write the application very quickly that has all those right characteristics, deploy it very quickly, test it, and then operate it very efficiently. Right. Um, I mean, there's nothing more pleasing. We just had an internal Azure event where we had uh, customers come in that are using Azure, 
Uh, I just spoke to what we call an executive, brief, executive briefing center group uh, where this a bunch of people from big California companies came in and talking to them about anybody using Azure, and a few of them had used Azure, asking them what, they're, what they felt about it. And they were enthusiastic about the fact that they were able to, t- to create these line-of-business applications and in a couple of the cases, consumer-facing applications, in a matter of, in one case, it was 90 days, they said it took them to go from the start to actually deploying it and using it, where they said it would have taken nine months to a year if they'd done it wow. on in traditional ways on their, you know, with infrastructure and having to manage all of that. Um, we hear that time after time, that it's shaved off dramatic amounts of time on going from, requirements to actually having an app running, delivering those requirements. I've also found that it's far easier to test an app in the cloud than it is to test an app in your own infrastructure. That's true, too. I mean, you don't have to uh, have a set of dedicated machines laying around that's your test set of machines. Right. And I think that's another really cool thing about Azure, actually, is the what we call the development fabric, this on-desktop cloud simulation, where you can take your... Presuming you're working with... uh, Visual Studio, and this is the way that you're writing your application inside of Visual Studio, you can launch your application, set breakpoints in various pieces of the interior architecture to see exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, launch it instantly. You know, set a breakpoint, find a problem, uh, close the application, fix it, and relaunch it. And, I mean, I, it, debugging it in a traditional interior debugging environment where at the minimum you're setting up a bunch of virtual machines and creating VLANs between them and then installing debuggers on each one and trying to get things synchronized, that's uh, order of magnitude more difficult. And, mm-hmm. and just the whole ability to provision gear for a good load test, only for the duration of the test, and then it all goes away. Right. You don't yep. need to keep that stuff around. So uh, yeah, I find that extremely compelling and, and interesting places to go. Uh, there was some announcement about what is eighteen months ago or so about Azure in a box. Yeah, that's something we we're calling Windows Azure Platform Appliance. Okay, and uh, we announced that. Um, yeah, I I don't know if it was eighteen months Maybe. ago or a little more recent. Yeah, just last year anyway. Yeah, I think we announced the first phase of it, which is called Interim Cloud Appliance, um, and that is a project that we are doing with Fujitsu, Dell, HP, and eBay to take. Azure, as it's running in Microsoft data centers, and deploy it in their data centers. And uh, where we Microsoft is managing these instances of Azure in their data centers alongside their data center operators and service administrators so that they can take advantage of Azure on-premise for their applications. And eBay's uh, planning on going big with this. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at the same time, we're learning uh, valuable we're getting valuable experience in how does what does it take to have Azure being uh, be operable without Microsoft's involvement, which is a key part of the appliance vision. Yeah. Is that you buy the appliance from us, you deploy it in your data center, and it's basically like a, a traditional server from the perspective of our involvement. You know, there might be occasional problems, but they should be as rare as what you experience on your with Windows Server and Microsoft Applications on Server, where at that point you call Microsoft support for help instead of having somebody there hand-holding or babysitting the thing. Sure. And it, and we're not talking about 
you know, a home server size box that also runs Azure. This is a, a rack of gear. That's right. Um, it'll be uh, multiple racks of gear, actually, um, even in its smallest size. And we haven't figured out the size yet. Um, that's something that that we're working on. Yeah, but don't don't think beige tower. Think yeah, don't think beige tower. And I know that um, there was an article. I think uh, Mary Jo Foley article on the appliance a couple weeks ago where there was a, a Microsoft person uh, that mentioned that the appliance would go from four uh, as small as four machines up to some big number. It's definitely not going to be four machines. Um, you're not going to see that for a long, long time. Right. Um, and I mean, I really believe that the, the appliance itself is just a, a really key part of the the Azure uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the public cloud, there's a lot of people that see the value in clouds, as we've been talking about. But for one reason or another, they don't want to put their data or applications up in a public cloud. Outside the premise, basically. Outside the premise, right. Mm-hmm. Or not necessarily outside the premise, but it's it's uh, the public cloud doesn't have compliance or geolocation requirements right. for them. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm putting and, together a show about a guy who ran into issues in the EU because he was tracking cows in um, Liechtenstein and he didn't have a data center <laughs> in Liechtenstein. It's like Austria was too far. Yeah, that's a great example of of why the appliance extends the reach dramatically right. of Windows Azure because you get enterprises that don't want to let the data out of their own data center mm-hmm. deploy the appliance and take advantage of it there. And then as far as public clouds that are in places that Microsoft just can't, we don't have the, the ability to reach into. We mm-hmm. can't have a data center in every country in the world that uh, hosters can take Azure and host it in those environments. And all, in addition, you can get hosters that are creating private instance, basically, of, of Azure so that an enterprise can go to a hoster and, and get their own private you know, nobody else is using this particular appliance except for us. So right. we're not worried about right. our data intermingling with anybody else's. But effectively, colo Azure. Exactly, colo right. Azure, and and the hosters can actually also be specialized hosters in the sense that this particular hoster has security and certification that goes far beyond what a you know Microsoft would do in a general purpose public cloud. Sure that addresses some particular niche market in some particular country that says, if you want your data off-premise, then these are the 15 certifications you need and security policies that have to be in place to do that. A hoster can provide that kind of service. Azure for financial services in Germany, for example. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great example, too. Yeah, and and it sounds like ISPs could be getting into this business more than enterprises, even. Yeah, I mean, I think at at some point, lots of people are going to be... not just uh, hosting Windows Azure as as platform as a service where other people are bringing their applications, but also getting the appliance and selling software as a service off those appliances. Mm-hmm. I mean, some, you know, SQL Azure, for example, mm-hmm. having just SQL off-premise in a Windows Azure appliance, but letting people take advantage of that, again, for with all the same scalability and, and everything else, even though you're running your compute on your own premise, storing your data and something like that. Uh, or people that are hosting Office 365, for example, one day on the Azure appliance and hosted environments or in their own data centers. And I really think, ultimately, if you watch this play out, because of the 
economies of efficiency that you get with this model of of the uh, the appliance and cloud and platform as a service and software as a service that in 10 years, the only people that will be buying servers are to replace their legacy servers right. that they need to keep continue operating just because they don't have the means or or desire to spend uh, money migrating those applications mm-hmm. off into uh, a cloud. And every so the traditional server will essentially go away over time and everything will be an appliance. I mean, if you play out the way that hardware costs are going and densities are growing uh, and compute power is growing, um, you know, in 20 years, you, you mentioned uh, the white box appliance. Well, right. I really think you'll be able to buy the white box appliance at that point. Well, and, and yeah, why would you ever own a server? It's so much more power than you'll ever need. Right. Just yeah. take the bits you actually want. Now, I understand that uh, times are tough for you, Mark, and you are actually been moonlighting to make a little extra cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got to do whatever you can. So just trying to make, I know it's, you know, tough time of uh, in the economy and so forth, so decided that writing science fiction was the way to go? Um, well, it's actually uh, a cyber thriller that I wrote, and I did it, act- I wrote it actually before I joined Microsoft. Really? Uh, I finished it uh, right before I joined the company. And, and that was that back just, in 96? That's a while that was ago. 2000, 2006, yeah. 2006, okay. But it's just taken forever. It took forever to first find an agent mm-hmm. and then to find a publisher and then to go through the publishing process to this point where it's going to be released in March, on March 15th. It's called Zero Day and it's a, a cyber thriller. And you mean you, you, coming from a guy who actually knows, right? I'm sure you're frightening everybody with this book. I obviously haven't read it, but I've heard. Yeah, well... The the thinking for this book actually, you know, when two thousand one, two thousand two, three, four, we saw that wave after wave of these network worms that were causing havoc mm-hmm. uh, across the world. If you look at every one of those situations, it was like one lone guy, yeah, high school student or something that let this thing loose and crashed ATMs or you know stopped airplanes from flying. Um, clogged networks, brought down websites, and that's just one guy that really the purpose of those viruses wasn't usually aimed at directly causing those things. It was just collateral of these things just kind of being mischievous. Right. And mm-hmm. so I've started thinking, you know, this is post 9-11. Well, what was the 9-11 attack really wasn't an attack to to take out a lot of lives. Um, it was more right. some. You know, symbolic and also to cause uh, disruption to the economies because mm-hmm. of of the the fear that it would cause. The goal of terrorists is terror, and they did a good job. They frightened people. Yeah, and that's exactly uh, what that nine eleven attack was about. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, well, if I'm a terrorist, uh, what better way to cause a lot of havoc with very little risk and very little cost? than to let loose viruses that spread really slowly and infect machines and and then yeah. uh, cause a lot of damage because they're written to do that. And so that's the kernel for the idea of the book that I started writing in 2005. I have sat around with, you know, close geek friends drinking beer saying, you know, thank goodness we're white hats because if we all sat down and really thought about how we'd build a really evil virus, <laughs> you know, yeah. what would we get? 
Yep. And that's, that's exactly the thinking that, you know, I, I'd, I'd gone through and similar, had similar conversations with friends. I think we uh, take over the world, right? Well, absolutely, right? Just because you don't do the dumb things that these other viruses yeah. do. Uh, did you look at the Stuxnet attack? I, th- I think it's the most sophisticated bit of cyber warfare in history so far. Yeah, there's no question about it. That's Ray. That's uh, by far the most sophisticated thing that we've seen. And yet, its distribution vector appears to be USB keys. Yep, I love that. But it's like you give away USB keys or somehow, you know, the old USB key dropped in a parking lot thing and it infects an entire infrastructure. It's, uh, there's been study after study. I mean, that's, that's one of the big vulnerabilities. Uh, even if you can't take advantage of, of zero-day attacks or unpatched vulnerabilities to spread viruses without human intervention across networks, which, you know, those kinds of vulnerabilities are being discovered all the time and there were several zero days that maybe weren't network spreading zero days, but still security vulnerabilities that were mm-hmm. taken advantage of by Stuxnet. You know that there's lots of cyber warriors around the world, in the United States, in China, in Russia, that are mm-hmm. doing nothing but finding zero days all day long. Sure. And not telling anybody about them and then using them for these kinds of things. But the, but the kind of ironic thing is, like you point out, that had just dropping a USB key there's a fantastic way to spread a virus. Yeah. There was a study done that I thought was really interesting a few years ago where uh, some com- some guys uh, doing security research went in, t- in front of a bil- public building and handed out CDs that had a program that was that would phone home. And they just said, yeah. here, you know, promotional CD, here you go. And the peop- then the percentage of people that actually took that CD and stuck it in their computer that they then they got the signal from was... A significant percentage, I think it was the majority of the people, actually went and did that. <laughs> you gotta love a social vector. Yep. Yep. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. As soon as I saw it was going to be published, I jumped on the pre-order list, and it'll it'll show up on my Kindle, I think, March 15. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing that. Oh, I hope, for, hope you enjoy it. Yeah, and I'll let you know. Mark, thanks so much for coming to talk to us. All right. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, thanks Mark. Greg. Been a pleasure. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Mm-hmm.